Oh yes, hello friends, welcome back. My guest today is Rob Henderson. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge and a US Air Force veteran. But we're not talking about the Air Force today, we are talking about dating. Specifically, how evolution relates to dating, how our preferences, why we like what we like, are shaping our behaviours in the modern world. Now, if this sounds to you like the most dry, boring conversation you can think of, you're wrong. This is one of the most interesting and exciting new areas that I've delved into in a very long time. I absolutely adore evolutionary psychology, so get used to it because you're going to be hearing a lot more. Today, we talk about how Tinder has ruined the dating market, why 20% of men are having sex with 80% of women, why women are struggling to find appropriate mates as the men going to college or university declines, why weightlifting is embedded evolutionarily as something that we should be attracted to, whether men can judge another man's attractiveness more accurately than women can, why there is an evolutionary justification for gold diggers, and why the withdrawal method is a suboptimal strategy for contraception. So yeah, hitting all the big ones today. <laughs> um, we did a relationship series a little while ago, four episodes focusing on Mind Journey and Yusuf's thoughts about dating. If you haven't heard those, you should definitely go back and listen to them. And they were just so well received. Obviously, dating and relationships is a universal. It's something that every person on the planet has in common. Everyone is trying to navigate this dating market as best they can. So I'm going to reopen it. I'm going to start doing more episodes that relate to intergender dynamics and relationships and all that sort of stuff. If the things that you learn about today resonate with you, if you would agree or disagree, I want to find out. There is a lot of stuff that is super left field, but makes sense if you can get around the fact that emotionally it can be a little uncomfortable. So yeah, let me know what you think at Chris Will X, wherever you follow me and if you are new here, or even if you're a long-time listener, make sure that you've hit the subscribe button. I can see on the back end, all the plays coming in are just people browsing the episodes and they haven't hit subscribe. So go and hit the button. It would make me very happy indeed. And it'll just take as long as this music gets to play. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, Everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But for now it's time for the wise and wonderful Rob Henderson. Welcome to uh, the UK during lockdown as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here, you know, in the middle of this uh, pandemic. So. 
So what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, uh, I thought we'd talk about some evolutionary psychology, some social psychology, and uh, what's going on with modern dating, um, modern in the sense of, you know, the 2020, but also in the sense of uh, what's going to happen with this coronavirus and how that might affect uh, the dating scene, too. I can't wait. I love it. So where do we start? Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose we could start uh, with some some basic evolutionary psychology. So just right off the top here, I mean, you know, a lot of people have questions about why do we like what we like? Um, how flexible are our preferences? You know, why why does it seem like men seem to be attracted to younger women? Why do women seem to be attracted to exceptionally wealthy men? Um, and of course, there could be some cultural components, but uh, a lot of ev evolutionary psychology focuses on sort of more innate or more cross-cultural preferences. And they basically are looking at, you know, what what is sort of evolutionarily advantageous for human beings to pass on uh, their, their genes. Um, and so evolution operates at the level of the gene. And so sometimes we do things that are advantageous for our genes, but they actually hurt ourselves. Um, what like? Uh, something like, for example, um, for men, we'll stick with men risk taking. Uh, so on average, women tend to be uh, attracted to men who take uh, risks uh, in, in intelligent ways. Um, but things like, uh, say, motorcycle riding or bungee jumping or certain kinds of sports. I mean, these are, you know, typically uh, more attractive and they're also extremely risky. Um and so things like this can can attract partners, you know, female partners, but they can also put your life in danger. Uh, but that's one of the interesting things about evolutionary psychology. I mean, one of the, the principles is that, you know, if you have a trait that is reproductively advantageous, but harmful to yourself, that trait will still tend to proliferate. <laughs> um, whereas if you have a trait that uh, is advantageous for survival, but turns off the opposite sex, then that trait will tend to disappear from the population. So say you have um, some kind of trait that um, promotes longevity, but I don't know, it makes you look unusual in some way, or, or just turns the opposite sex off, then it doesn't matter that it's keeping you alive. If you can't find a partner, that gene is going to, or those genes are going to disappear. So um, something else uh, that's important to know uh, about evolutionary psychology in men and women uh, is that women take on a much greater burden with child rearing than men do. So if you think about what does a man have to invest to have a child, well, really not much more than a few minutes of activity. And a few, a few that's minutes maybe being very generous to a couple of men as well, Rob, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be nice. We've all, and, had, a, we've all had a bad night, all right? You know? <laughs> that's true, that's true. Um, and there are some, so, so yeah, exactly. So, so some men, they invest a few minutes, maybe a few seconds in some cases, whereas for women, they have to invest. I mean, if a woman happens to get pregnant and have a child, I mean, that is, you know, nine months of pregnancy followed by, you know, years of having to take care of, of a child and so on. And so in the ancestral environment, women took on a much greater burden. And so women have uh, evolved to be particularly choosy about who they partner with. Um, they tend to be more uh, scrutinizing. They evaluate men uh, to see whether a man is, is uh, you know, a sort of worthy partner, whereas men tend to be 
slightly less, um, you know, scrutinizing and yeah, a little bit more relaxed in in terms of who they're willing to to have sex with. Uh, when it comes to long term relationships, men do have um, some rigid standards about who they'll partner with. But um, even though today we have birth control, we have all of these reproductive technologies and so on. Um, our brains and our bodies are still sort of stuck in this stone age. Um, you know, humans, there's some debate about this, but humans haven't really changed much in the last 100,000 years or so. Um, and so some strategies that we enact today reproductively um, are more beneficial for a different environment, for the ancestral environment. Yeah, I know a, a good example of this, I think, is men fighting and the increased chance of men fighting one as a group. Have you seen this? Oh, oh, yeah. I, mean, I haven't seen that specifically, but that makes sense. So if there's uh, men tend to fight, it's a display of dominance. Um, there's a, a an embedded um, winner and loser behavior mechanism as well, that the loser cowers. It means I am lower, that the winner kind of is up and tall, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Um <laughs> And uh, apparently, I can't remember where I read it, I'm just swimming in evolutionary psychology at the moment. So it's like David Buss or Robert Wright or Rob Henderson. Um, and uh, yeah, that's when um, there's a group of people observing a man's likelihood of fighting, of getting to a physical altercation goes up. And that would make sense mm. in an evolutionary standpoint, right? If you are in a tribe which only has 50 people in it and everybody knows everything that's happened and there's people watching and you back down from a fight, they might think in future, I can push Rob around, that guy's a pussy. Um, whereas yeah. if you stand up for yourself, even if you potentially lose, but if you stand up for yourself, people might think, yeah, Rob's worthy of respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that seems to yeah, that seems to align with with uh, some evolutionary yeah psychology principles. And uh, yeah, when there is a crowd, it would make sense that men are are sort of more willing to engage in like sort of physical altercation. Um, I've also seen um, you know if you look at data, I think um, uh, Martin Wilson and Margot Daly. I think I'm getting the names right. Uh, Wilson and Daly, in any case, are the last names. They looked at uh, young male homicides and the causes of young male homicides in the United States. And what they found is that um, most homicides started over um, what they called trivial altercations, um, essentially uh, sort of minor insults, you know, uh, sort of dissing one another or insulting one another. And these are, are the most uh, the most common uh, reason for a male homicide is because of these trivial altercations, what they discovered. Um, and so uh, interestingly, I just read a, a blog post about this on Psychology Today um, by Douglas Kenrick. And he said that if you're a young man, one of the things you can do to promote your own survival and longevity is to be polite to other young men. Um, simply because, you know, disrespecting another young man is actually very dangerous um, based on based on some of these findings on on what causes men to kill one another. Trivial altercations, man. So dangerous. Like you, you don't want to <laughs> knock someone's drink over or cut in line at the supermarket. Or whatever. Well, there's not enough people at the supermarket at the moment anyway to allow that, is there? You've got to keep two meter distance. Um, <laughs> so, OK, so men and women have different risks associated mm -hmm. with having sex right. and until recently 
we were unable to have any reliable form of protection, despite how accurate and well-timed you think your withdrawal game is. It is not the... Um, it's not the, the not optimal. <laughs> it's a suboptimal uh, contraceptive strategy, yeah. Um, so what, what else do we need to know? Yeah, I mean, something else that might be interesting uh, are, you know... So I've read a lot about uh, about men in particular, you know, why we are driven to do these things that that uh, that we do and something like like weightlifting or um, playing sports, things like this. Um, well, one reason why, for example, men want to weightlift is to, to build big muscles. And the research does show on uh, research on attraction that women are more attracted to, to men with big muscles. Uh, muscular men are, uh, they report having more sexual partners relative to less muscular men. Um, part of this is because, uh, you know, building muscles is costly, right? It's a, it's a sort of fitness indicator, not in this, not fitness in the sense of like, you know, sporty or athletic, but, but fitness in terms of, uh, reproductive fitness, Darwinian fitness. Um, if you can build muscles, it indicates a lot of things about you. Uh, it indicates that you're able to obtain, you know, calories, the resources necessary to build those muscles. Uh, it indicates conscientiousness, which is a personality trait. Um, someone who can, who regularly goes to the gym, that person is diligent and hardworking. They, they, uh, have goals and stick to them. Um, and then of course, you know, they confer, uh, protective advantages too. you know, people are less likely to mess with a, with a muscular guy relative to a smaller guy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you see some of this, uh, in, in the research, um, yeah, muscular men report, uh, more sexual, sexual partners. I just yeah. want to, I just want to kind of dig into that for a second here. Um, yeah. the fact that women find those traits attractive mm -hmm. and a man has those traits suggests that if she was to mate with him that her children would have those traits which means that they are more likely to reproduce because other women will find that to be attractive uh yeah yeah so this is uh some some call this the the sexy son hypothesis um <laughs> which a, is what uh, a brilliant name yeah yeah so so this is uh, i first learned about this i think in matt ridley's book the red queen this uh the sexy son hypothesis is basically this idea that women are attracted to men who are attractive to other women and the reason is because if they have sons with this man that their sons will also be attractive to lots of women and thereby you know uh, pass on those genes but yeah i mean the basic idea you're, you're describing is that yeah when women want uh men who have certain qualities because you know those qualities will tend to pass down to their offspring um but i think it's also important to make clear that these aren't um you know, these aren't calculated or sort of, uh, you know, deliberate, uh, you know, strategies that, that we're enacting. A lot of this is going on sort of under the hood. Um, we're not even aware of why we like what we like or why we do what we do. We just know that it makes us feel good. Um, you know, so, you know, when, when a woman likes a muscular man, it's not because, you know, all of these operations are going on. Well, if my, if all my kids will be muscular and <laughs> yeah, their kids will be muscular. If there's a know, woman out there who's gone through her, <laughs> gone through that discourse that we've just had in her mind, I, I want to meet her and talk to her because she'd be that fascinating. But, um, yeah, you're, you're totally correct. And that was the mm -hmm. point I, I really wanted to, to try and get out of you. Can you explain mm -hmm. how, genes and what they do to promote genetic fitness and emotions and feelings and the more conscious side of the brain, how those two things interlink. I think, um, 
is it Robert Wright that says uh, genes are the preferences and emotions that are executors, something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, genes are basically selected for and basically through evolutionary pressures uh, shape certain behaviors. Um, and of course, like there are other factors involved, cultural factors, social factors and so on. But, you know, a lot of our behaviors are our strategies um, enacted through through our genes. And it's not like we're consciously aware of it. We're just sort of going through these motions in the same way that, say, you know, when you're when you're eating sugar, um, you're not going through this calculated process of, you know, well, I'm eating the sugar because it's giving me caloric energy, which I, I can expend later and so on. Um, the sugar just makes us feel good. And our genes give us this little reward. You know, our biology gives us this little thing like, OK, you're eating sugar. It makes you feel good because that's advantageous. Um, but things don't make you feel good for no reason. Right. Like everything that makes you feel good is something that, at least in the ancestral environment, you know, paid off. Um in, a, in an evolutionary sense. Um, so when you when you see a beautiful woman or you see a particularly, you know, athletic man or whatever it happens to be, you feel a little bit good. You know, you feel some positive uh, response to that. And none of this is deliberate or calculated. It's it's just sort of, you know, built right into us. And, you know, it's it's yeah, it's not it's not anything that um, that we're really thinking about necessarily. Yeah, for sure. I think this for me is precisely why I've found evolutionary psychology to be so interesting it is looking it's it's even looking under the hood it's taking the engine apart and it's looking mm -hmm. inside of the engine it's looking at why do we like the things that we like why are our preferences the way they are and then when you take mm -hmm. that you take the fact that we have these unwritten rules about the way that we operate and mm -hmm. then you apply them to an environment in which they were absolutely not designed to operate which is where we are now, I guess, what is it? Um, the last 10,000 years, probably, I guess it'd be maybe 5,000 to 10,000 years or so would be beginning, but especially now. You yeah. Know? Um, you're totally right. Perfect example. I love the idea of um, guys going to the gym, displaying the fact that they're able to get surplus calories um, because mm -hmm. surplus calories are something which would have been a rarity you know, 50,000 50, years ago when all of our problems were problems of scarcity, not problems of abundance like now. Right. Um, and a, a guy who's able to be big is, like, oh my God, he must be an unbelievable hunter. Uh, he must mm. be very diligent. Like you say, must be very conscientious. Mm. But people are now able to game that system, you know, right. like you choosing to eat a protein shake and go to the gym <laughs> and lift some weights and stuff. That's gaming the system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and on that point about, you know, going to the gym and building big muscles, um, something I wanted to touch on earlier about this, you know, a lot of these sort of secondary male characteristics, um, there's a there's a, a paper called Beauty and the Beast by uh, this. This, I think, is an evolutionary psychologist, David Putz. And he basically found evidence for these secondary male sexual characteristics evolving, not necessarily only to attract women, but also to signal uh, dominance towards other men uh, to basically intimidate potential uh, sexual partners, sexual rivals. Um, and basically what he found is that, you know, if you show women pictures of, you know, uh, muscular men, for example, um, and ask how attractive they are, you know, women do have a small preference for muscular men relative to less muscular men. But if you ask men how intimidating a muscular man looks relative to a non-muscular man, men are actually like the, the effect size for intimidation. Men are much more intimidated by that. 
Um, other characteristics like beards. So there's a, a wide de debate, you know, online and everywhere else. You know, do women like beards or not? Um, and uh, yeah, I see you got a little stubble going on there. I, this is, I, I, I'm, I can't decide. I'm trying to play both camps at the same time, Robert. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, we can have, you know, you can grow it out. You can shave it. You know, there's yeah, yeah. You know, we have options. Um, but uh, for beards, um, the evidence is totally mixed. Uh, about whether women actually like them or not. Um, whereas for men, if you ask them how intimidating is this man with a beard versus without, men are, are very likely to say he's more intimidating with a beard. Um, almost no man would say a clean-shaven man is more intimidating than a man with a beard. That's so and interesting. So, Did you have a look at men with checkered shirts? <laughs> let me let me take a look at that one. Yeah, that would be good. I, I think it was um, you who tweeted the study and then I tagged a couple of my buddies in it. Um, mm -hmm. Am I right in saying that the most robust characteristic or physical trait for a man to have is muscle size? It was more effective than low voice, than mm -hmm. beard, and than height? Is that okay? Um, so I saw a study that was a, a, a big analysis, and there was varying small degrees, little bits here and there with certain women, certain age ranges of what they liked in men, uh, mm -hmm. but across the most robust strategy for making uh, a man more attractive to women across age ranges was just put, put some muscle on. So oh, yeah, yeah. If, if you're listening, if you're listening, you're struggling, you've had a little bit of a dry spell and you're mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I, I don't know whether to grow a beard or go to the gym, go to the gym first. <laughs> Maybe grow the beard while you're at the gym. Nice. Yeah, do a, nice. Yeah. I like it. Some, some interaction there. Um, so yeah, and, and so there was an interesting study related to this um, where they basically, uh, so a group of researchers uh, took uh, a group of men and uh, had them speak to a camera, you know, just a few minutes uh, recording these short videos of these men. And then they showed these videos to uh, different participants. So they showed these videos to uh, first to a group of women, and then they had these women watch these videos and ask them, um, how sexually attractive do you find this man? And I think they rated him on a scale of one to seven. And then they showed those same videos to a group of men and asked these men, um, how likely is it that this man in this video would win a physical fight with another man? <laughs> and again, like scale of one to seven, right? <laughs> and then they tracked the men in those videos um, 18 months later and uh, basically uh, asked them how many sexual partners they'd had over those last 18 months. And they found uh, that... The number of sexual partners they had was associated with how uh, formidable they looked, how tough they looked to men. That was there was a link there, but there was no link between how many partners they had and how attractive they were to women. So it actually looks like how <laughs> tough you look uh, is more predictive of how many uh, partners you'll have than how sort of sexy you look what to you're, women. What you're saying, Rob, is that men are better at picking out men that are going to get laid than women are. In, in a way, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if you put it quite that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. Okay, But, but so, in terms of, yeah, you know, looking at how tough a guy looks, yeah. Yes. So we have different preferences for men and women. We have this mm. ancestral environment, which is where our genes were created. They have these feelings and these emotions that execute what we should be doing, our behaviors and our preferences and things like that. Some of them were either not conscious at all, partly conscious or kind of completely conscious you know when you see a, a woman or a man who piques your interest and you go oh that's like she's hot he's hot whatever um mm. so what what do we move on to next what's next 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we can look at, for example, I mean, we could we could even go back to and this could this could maybe connect to some some of the more modern dating kind of stuff. But, you know, again, so men uh, have have uh, far smaller investment in in sex compared to women. Uh, again, you know, this sort of few minutes, few seconds kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's advantageous, actually, evolutionarily for men to seek uh, more variety uh, they tend to be more interested in novelty. Um, I just listened to uh, this podcast. I think it was Justin Laymiller, who's a sex researcher, and he reported that um, basically when women have sexual fantasies, um, it tends to be the same person throughout the duration of the fantasy, whereas for men, men tend to switch, uh, you know, who they're fantasizing about, um, you know, minute to minute as, as they're going through Which the fantasy. Which, as, as any, any man or woman who's listening knows, is completely impractical and wholly uh, <laughs> would be a, an, an operational nightmare. <laughs> in, in real life, you'd be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. But, but yeah, in the fantasy, men will sort of go through these different scenes, different people and so on, whereas women tend to stick with the same person. Uh, and then you see this sort of uh, in real life, too. Um, well, the thing is, so if you look at number of sexual partners, um, Straight men, straight women tend to report uh, about four to six uh, sexual partners is the median number that men and women report uh, in the U.S. at least. Um, lesbian women are about the same, four to six sexual partners. But if you look at gay men, the numbers are something like 16 to 20 sexual partners. <laughs> and, you know, and the thing is, like, you know, they're basically I think this is is a more sort of representative look at male sexuality in a way. Um, I think straight men would prefer to have 20 partners versus four partners. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, they have different challenges, right? They, you know, they have to basically convince women to like them and women are, are choosier, um, in comparison. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, and this is something also, also that's interesting, you know, women, women are choosier in a sense, but, um, the psychologist, Steve Stewart Williams, uh, has got a pretty big Twitter account. He, he has called, you know, he's he sort of described women's sexual strategies as selectively promiscuous. Um, and what that means is that women will, you know, it, basically, if a man has exceptionally high status, uh, if you're a rock star or, you know, uh, an actor or something like that, um, you can tend to you, you can basically get a lot of female sexual partners. Um, many women will sort of reduce their standards for emotional commitment or for trust or cooperation or all of these kindness, these kinds of things, if a man has, you know, this extraordinarily high status. So women can be in some cases sort of this selectively promiscuous, um, as Steve Stewart Williams puts it. Um, but in their, in their, in general, in their daily lives, they tend to be, you know, quite careful. Mm, yeah. So what I want to kind of touch on here is that we have this, evolutionary landscape which has an asymmetry no matter what you think men and women aren't the same um at least in this particular domain i do not want to get into a deeper discussion about that men and women are not the same in terms of their investment in how children are born and what that means is that women have to be the gatekeepers and men have to be the sexual protagonists mm -hmm. and what i think is interesting is that you see these roles play out in cultural memes that become caricatures, right? So you know, every man, has, has a woman ever been called a sleaze? Sleaze. You know, like, a, or a creep. 
Like, there's, okay. no, there's no woman who's ever so much the sexual protagonist that a man would call her a sleaze. But that's a, a common put down for men, right? You know, or a, yeah. a, a fuck boy or what, you know, pick your vernacular, whatever you want to say. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. So you, you have that, but you're like, hang on a second. That is a modern day interpretation of an ancient system at work, mm-hmm. right? Then mm-hmm. the fact that, oh, well, he should text first. Perfect mm. example. Like, why should a man text first? Well, probably because he, you have, as a woman, you have more to lose by a sexual encounter, which means that you need to make him jump through more hoops to get to have that sex. Because the yeah. risk for you, traditionally, over the last 100,000 years, has been higher. Therefore, you're the gatekeeper, he's the protagonist. But yeah. that is a, a perfect example of how the modern world of dating, the modern interactions that every man and woman that's listening will know, reflect that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, and you can see this. Yeah, even even in our, our more enlightened age, you know, the other the other day, for example, I was talking to, uh, to a woman and she told me that she had a crush uh, this, with this, you know, this guy at her work. And I asked her, you know, why don't you ask him out then? And she said, oh, I would never ask a guy out. And I said, but you I really like him, right? Of, I have a number of yeah. male friends that would say exactly the yeah. same thing. I, she, she said, no matter how much I like a guy, I would never ask him out. And can you imagine a guy saying this? Like one of your guy friends, you know, he likes a, a, you know, some woman and you, and you say, ask her out. And, and he says, no matter how much I like a woman, I would never ask her out. <laughs> Does that make sense? That doesn't compute, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, we see these, you know, as you're saying, the sort of uh, protagonist, the sort of uh, mm-hmm. gatekeeper, uh, well, I mean, as, a, as a, a, a perfect experiment there to the mm-hmm. men and to the women that are listening to the women, how many times have you gone up to a guy and said, <laughs> Hey, I think you're really hot. Or, are you single or whatever? Now you may have gone up to a guy and said, my friend who sat on that table thinks that you're really <laughs> single, but that doesn't count. So don't try and slip it past me. And then on the flip reverse of that for men, how many times has a girl come up to you? And said and, and said the same thing. Like it is, it, I can count. You know, I I've worked a lot of nights in my life, and um, man, it I can remember probably most of the times that that's happened. It is a a very exceptionally unique makeup of a girl who is prepared to go and do that. And you right. think, well, why? Why is that the yeah. case? Is it, it could can such a skew in people's behaviour simply be sociocultural? Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not aware of any any culture or society in which it is the norm for women to ask men uh, out on dates or, or sort of take the initiative in these courtship rituals. Um, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think it's it could be even more important, you know, it's just, just maybe we could sort of transition into into, yeah, this sort of modern dating. It could be more important for women to um, take this initiative, especially educated women. Um, because among the educated population uh, within the U.S., and I think within most Western countries now, uh, there are more educated women than there are educated men. And so if you're an educated woman looking for a partner who's also educated, um, things are actually looking quite tough for them. It's a bad dating market at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, you know, coronavirus aside, you know, even before all of this, uh, I think, yeah, things were, were looking um, actually quite grim if you look at the data uh, for, for especially educated single women. Um, so there's this great book, just a couple years old, uh, from John Berger called Datonomics. And he basically ran a bunch of analyses looking at, 
basically, you know, how many single men and how many single women are there? How many educated women versus educated women? And so on. And what he basically found is that among people with bachelor's degrees or above um, who are in their you know, 20s and their 30s, sort of young adults, young singles, there are 33% more women than men. So there are four women who are college educated compared to every three men. And so basically the market is actually looking quite, you know, uh, quite unappealing or, or sort of not maybe not unappealing, but, you know, it, it's not looking good mm. for women. Whereas for men, it's actually the opposite. So if you're an educated man, there's actually a surplus of potential partners for you, uh, in part because if you're an educated man, you can date educated women of which there are more you know, educated women than men. But you can also date less educated women. Right. Whereas educated women tend to be more reluctant to date men who are less educated for some of the reasons that we mentioned before. Women want men who have certain qualities. Um, now, there are some cases where women will date men who are less educated than them. But what the research shows is that in those cases, their partners tend to earn more than them. And in fact, women who date men with less education are twice as likely to be married to a man who has higher income than themselves. So, you know, if you basically if you're an uneducated man, all hope is not lost for you if you want an educated woman, but you just have to earn a lot more money. You gotta you gotta get your craft up. <laughs> gotta hustle, gotta man. Some, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so again, here's another cultural meme and I I can I can feel the the triggering. I can feel it happening even in myself, right? Like mm-hmm. I I don't like hearing the fact that women have hypergamous dating preferences that they date what is referred to as up and across, right? They will, they, it's the same um, perfect example of this is if there are any tall girls who are listening, you don't tend to want to date a guy that's shorter than you. If you take that as a characteristic across most uh, important elements of dating, you, most women on the whole don't want to date a man who earns less than them or who is less educated than them. And if you are less educated, you need to compensate by earning significantly more as the data would suggest. Um, but you know, it's very easy to turn that into a caricature. And what's the caricature of that? The gold digger. Mm, you know, right, that's right. the, that's the modern, that's the fuckboy Tinder generation <laughs> WhatsApp world speak. Mm. of what that is it's it's the girl who is purely interested in mm. uh resource acquisition um and mm. it's again it, it's challenging to it's challenging to try and get this across without it sounding like a value judgment that either encourages or discourages says it's either good or bad this isn't uh, i'm going to try and create some form of disclaimer for rob as well here this isn't <laughs> keeping us safe keeping yeah us safe. exactly this isn't yeah. either of us saying that this is good or bad this is the way that people should or should not behave but right i would challenge anybody that's listening to say that this isn't the way that people behave we have some pretty robust data and everybody knows everybody knows the guy who is prepared to sleep with women who are of varying standards but I don't know many women that are prepared to sleep with men who are of varying standards. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. Yeah. And yeah, it's important that, you know, the studies that I'm describing and, you know, some of these, you know, generalizations, these observations, you know, they're, they're descriptions, right? They're not, they're not prescriptions. So these are sort of, um, 
you know, describing what people do, but it's not saying this is what people should do. You know, some people sort of make this, you know, what's called the naturalistic fallacy, which is basically that just because something exists in nature, that means that's the way it should be. Um, but clearly this isn't the case. I mean, you know, coronavirus exists, right? That arose, you know, that, you know, someone ate a bat or something and now there's this pandemic. Should that be the way it is? Darkness, uh, darkness on a nighttime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there are some maybe less savory aspects of human nature, but doesn't mean you should enact it. But we are describing it. I think describing it and talking about it and bringing some of these out into the light can help us, you know, inhibit it or, or redirect it to something that would align more with our moral commitments and, you know, try to try to make people happier. So what well, a perfect simple. example of this to before we delve fully into the world of Tinder. Um, a, per- a perfect example of this is the modern the modern setup of monogamy, right? Um, yeah. What's your? I'm going to ask you to put your money where your mouth is now, having read a fair bit of evolutionary psychology. What's your feelings on what would have been a typical ancestral setup for um, relationships? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, what I've read um, for you know what goes on in hunter gatherer societies. Um, they were largely monogamous um, for the most part uh, for multiple reasons. Um, one reason is um, it was essentially impossible to stockpile resources uh, in a hunter-gatherer or foraging society. So uh, a, a man could not accumulate vast amounts of material wealth simply because if you're in a, a, a small band or a tribe, and you're constantly moving, you know, going where the food is, where the water is, you can't hoard like lots of material resources and carry it around with you. Um, that's one reason. And then another is that simply, um, you know, men had to rely on one another and trust one another in war and in hunting. And, you know, men aren't going to go, you know, fight for, you know, their someone in their in their tribe who has all of the women, right? Like, why would they do that? And so basically men had to essentially, I mean, this sounds, you know, maybe it doesn't sound so good, but basically like men had to create a system where the sort of access to sexual partners or whatever was roughly equal in order for the tribe to survive. Um, now, this doesn't mean that in hunter-gatherer societies, you know, infidelity didn't exist or, you know, mate poaching, which is, you know, luring someone else out of a relationship. Like there's there's research on modern day hunter gather societies and there is infidelity. There is, you know, cheating. There's, you know, divorce exists in a way where basically like, you know, people will switch partners later on and leave their current partner. Um, so there's there's all of the things, you know, all these things that are sort of recognizably um parts of human nature but you know polygamy and its variations didn't appear to exist until the the rise of agriculture um once people were able to sit in one place and and stockpile resources the invention of money uh the ability to have you know uh the to command large armies and so on um, those things didn't come until after the advent of agriculture, but in, in small bands, um, they were mostly monogamous is my understanding. But, you know, the question, often the question is, you know, are we naturally monogamous? Are we naturally promiscuous? What are we? Um, and the answer is we're kind of both. There is no, you know, universal template for human beings. Um, it looks like in terms of stability, monogamy is the best. 
um, both, you know, maybe modern society and also in, in forging societies. Um, but, you know, people still do have urges and people want to, you know, have, have more than one partner, divorce is widespread. And so, yeah, we sort of want to, what is it? Have our cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very, you know, that's very human. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we're moving into the, we're moving into the modern world, we're moving into Tinder and, and, and modern dating and stuff like that. What have you been thinking about to do with that recently? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that's been on my mind lately, uh, and I talked about this in a recent newsletter, is what is coronavirus going to do with, you know, with casual sex, um, which, you know, Tinder and these other apps are associated more with with sort of casual sex, although people do meet their partners on them. And, you know, you can't like all the bars are shut down, right? Like you can't go out, you can't go to restaurants, like you can't meet anyone anywhere. And so that's, you know, one obstacle if you want to meet someone new. And another is, we don't know who has this virus, man. Like, are you like excited to go meet someone new if you don't know like who has this virus, who doesn't? Like, who's eager to like have a new sex partner who who might have COVID nineteen? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is something that uh, my 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 impression is that there will be less casual sex at least throughout the course of this epidemic. Um, and I think people will sort of recommit to whatever relationships they happen to be in for now. Um, after this is all over, I'll be curious to see how it goes. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some stories about, you know, couples who live together are starting to feel, you know, a little bit irritated at their partner because they've been cooped up inside for so long with this sort of social distancing stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, Tinder is very interesting. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, education and, and so on, this, uh, there was a study, I think it was this year, or maybe it was late last year on Tinder. Um, I want to say it was in the Netherlands where they basically took um, male profiles on Tinder, uh, took the same exact man, same profile, and all they did was change his education. Uh, so in one profile, the man had a bachelor's degree, and in another profile, the same man, he had a master's degree, and found that the man with the master's degree got about twice as many uh, likes compared to the man with the bachelor's degree. Um, so again, you know, you mentioned earlier to your listeners here, you know, uh, hit the gym, but maybe also, you know, hit the books, uh, if you want to get more likes. There's there's only so many hours in the day. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, prioritize, uh, one or the other, but, uh, but yeah, so, so this is pretty interesting. Um, even on Tinder, you see these, these sorts of, um, you know, these sorts of mating strategies, uh, emerge in terms of, uh, status, education, and all of these kinds of signals. And, you know, relatedly, um, you know, given that the economy seems to be tanking right now, um, this could be bad news for, for some men and maybe good news for others. But basically, um, what the research shows, uh, this, this rise in, in sexy selfies, right? So it was this, this research, basically, that was, it was done on, on sexy selfies. And what they found was that basically, so they had a question, you know, why are women taking sexy photos of themselves in this way? How and do then, they define sexy photo? Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, sort of provocative, maybe, you know, not wearing much, something like that. Um, bikini I don't know bikini way, like, photos or well-posed like photos that. and stuff like that. Okay, Right, sort of beach photos, this kind of thing. And so the researchers asked, well, are women doing this because, like, are the societies women doing this in 
more misogynistic, maybe uh, societies that are more likely to objectify women or view them as sex, you know, uh, just just for, because of their sexuality or something like that. Um, or could it be uh, something else? Um, and so they basically like collected, you know, data from all of these different countries, different regions within countries. And they found um, that, you know, the misogyny of a country had nothing to do with how many sexy selfies women were posting. But what sexy selfies were associated with was um, economic inequality um, within uh, developed countries. So, for example, within the U.S., in regions like New York City or Miami, uh, San Francisco, places where there's a, a bigger gap in, in income between men, you're going to find a proliferation of more uh, female sexy selfies. And the researchers posit that the reason for this could be that, you know, if there is a small number of men who have a lot of economic resources, women are basically competing um, and sort of advertising themselves to these men. Um, they have to up their game. Basically, they're upping their game uh, in, in regions where, yeah, basically there's a, a lot of haves and or rather few haves and a lot of have nots. And yeah, I mean, there's there's also interesting research uh, from the 2008 economic recession on um, purchasing habits of women. And what they found was that um, shortly after the 2008 economic recession, sales of cosmetics uh, increased. And again, you know, the researchers there posited that, you know, in an economic downturn uh, where, you know, women are, are again sort of upping their game, trying to find um, the, the relatively fewer men who are economically successful uh, in those situations. Um, you know, I feel like we're sort of like just, you know, talking about women and, and this, you know, like you mentioned gold diggers earlier. I want to I want to, again, you know, sort of just write this disclaimer here that, um you know, women aren't gold diggers or anything, but but um, that they are enacting a strategy that paid off for their ancestors, facts, right? To, to facts identify don't men. care about your feelings, Robert. Unfortunately, <laughs> and the guys from Datanomics know that firsthand. Well, why That's don't great. we why don't we flip it on its head? Why don't we start yeah. talking about the uh, gender sex gap between okay. men and women? So mm -hmm. I know that I think it's the bottom 80% of men on Tinder are competing for the bottom 20% of women. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. That was a, that was a fascinating uh, finding. Yeah. Where they basically found, yeah, exactly what you're, what you're describing here that, you know, men who are not, you know, exceptionally good looking or, or have certain status markers, they're having a much harder time on Tinder um, just to put this into perspective, if I recall these numbers correctly, men, uh, on average swipe 60% of the female profiles they see, they like them. Was it swipe, swipe, right? Yeah. You know, they like those profiles. Don't pretend you don't know, Robert. I know. I, let me, let me pull up my app real quick. Um, <laughs> check. um and then, uh, Whereas women, on the other hand, I think it was 4%. They swipe right on 4% of the male profiles they see. That is an unbelievably um, no, low number. I mean, just purely from a, a time investment standpoint, right. you're going to get through 100 people to get four, four right swipes. And if you have a particularly bad yeah. afternoon, it's not a, not a ridiculous stat to think you might not stripe, swipe right on anyone. Unbelievable. It's almost like the experiences are completely different, right? Whereas 
I mean, like I once this this wasn't a psychologist. I just uh, in a casual conversation, I once heard someone describe this the, the sort of difference between men and women in terms of you know how they evaluate the opposite sex. Whereas something like men look for reasons why they wouldn't sleep with a girl, whereas women look for reasons why they would sleep with a man. So the default position for men is, you know, I would sleep with her unless there's some extraordinary reason why I shouldn't. Whereas for women, it's I'm definitely not going to sleep with him unless there's some particular reason why I should. Um, and this is sort of, you know, we're seeing this in, on Tinder, right, with with the frequency of, of, of right swipes. So, uh, yeah, so basically there's a large group of men who are collecting large numbers of, of likes. I have a friend, um, and you probably know guys like this, who are racking up huge, huge numbers on these dating apps. Um, yeah, I have a friend who has, you know, something like 20,000 plus uh, matches on Tinder. I think he closed it down. He ended up getting a relationship and you know, he settled down. But for, for a I'm while, surprised he was... he didn't, I'm surprised he didn't break the fucking servers. Yeah. He closed it down because Tinder came in and, and they said, oh, sorry, we just can't give this account any more storage space with your 20,000 likes. Yeah, sh- shut it all down. Um, no, it was actually the opposite. Um, I don't know how this happened, but he was, uh, Tinder identified him as like some kind of valuable user and like gave him all of these perks and benefits and like lifted his limitations on how oh many swipes God. he Was it like make. Amazon Prime or something? If, you, yeah. <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever actually spent more than a thousand pounds in a year on Booking.com, you get to become a genius. And Booking.com, okay. being a Booking.com genius is fantastic. You get 10% off, you get early check-in. So just, I wonder if he got like early check-in. And, yeah, it's and, essentially the equivalent of that. No, yeah. I haven't, I've never uh, gotten those privileges. Sometimes Amazon sends me complimentary protein bars. Nice. Uh, because I, I order so many of them, but I've never, uh, never, never anything like free Amazon Prime. But, um, but yeah, so, so you have guys like, like my friend here who has all of these likes. And then you have other guys. I, and I think this is probably more typical of the male experience on dating apps where, you know, they go through, you know, dozens or hundreds of profiles and and get maybe a handful of of uh matches with women um and so yeah this is this is sort of the typical male experience where you know the 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 competition isn't as tough and one thing i'm concerned about now with with the economic downturn is that it could get tougher um Mm, as women or guys losing their jobs yeah 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 a handful of guys maybe you know guys guys who can work from home you know podcasters and so on who you know have stay-at-home gigs you know things might might turn out pretty good for for them but for other guys hoping rob he is hoping mate i'm fucking (laughs) just been praying i just been praying for a pandemic to happen so that my dating my dating situation can improve no man it's um (laughs) Again, this is another tough pill for, for men to swallow. And, and, you know, when we talk about a world which I absolutely haven't delved into, but incels, MGTOW, uh, which is men going their own way, uh, mm. red pill, black pill movement, Rollo Tomasi is going to come on at some point when I can finally get a hold of him. You know, all oh, of this, all of this kind of like men going their own way thing, um, I think is, is in response to the challenges that men are seeing in the dating market. It's increasingly mm-hmm. hard for men to find women. Um, the stats don't lie. I can't remember how big the sample size was for Tinder, but it was, I remember that they analyzed a lot the difference between how many men that 80 20, which is so funny that it's a Pareto distribution as well. Um, that 80 20 distribution between the bottom 80% of men 
competing mm. for the bottom 20% of women, which conversely means that the top 80% of men, of women are competing for the top 20% of men. Like it's yeah. such that top 20% of men have such an unfair advantage. Yeah. Um, and I got, I got a comment, an unbelievably long comment uh, that was very well, very well written. Although I, I didn't understand most of the language, and it's someone who had crawled out from these Reddit subthreads about MGTOW and incels and stuff like that, and had said about um, he was making a comment on a girl that I had on recently who created a, a website like OnlyFans. Long story short, he said one of the things he accused me of um, playing the game because I'm 32 and still single. He said that if I was, if I was being um, charitable slash respectful generally for men as a whole. I wouldn't continue okay. staying single until 32. The implication is that I'm playing the game, that I'm tying up the options of a number of different girls throughout, throughout their twenties, throughout their twenties, throughout their twenties, which is okay. restricting men from, I mean, first off, I was very flattered. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> uh, secondly, the, the fact it was so well written, man. Like it was, it, this mm. comment was, it had line breaks and he'd managed to make shit bold on YouTube. I didn't even know you could do that. So I'm like, this is, this guy, is this a fucking small thesis? You should submit it at Cambridge. And um, he went through <laughs> and then up. I replied, I gave this tiny little reply and then he went again. And it there was a little bit of sort of vitriol in it. But what made me really sit back was that it was very well balanced and worded. And he obviously understood what he was talking about. And I was like, there is an entire body of knowledge here trying to figure out why men aren't getting laid. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that, I mean, that, that, that definitely sort of is at least to me, a, a very charitable, uh, probably one of the more charitable, uh, flattering, yeah. you know, interpretations I've seen. It's a backhanded uh, way of, of, of yeah. doing it. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of guys out there who are struggling. I know guys like this, um, who aren't doing so well, um, in terms of dating, in terms of jobs, you know, they're not where they want to be and yeah, they're struggling. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think guys like you or anything like tying, tying women up or anything like that, you know, in terms of keeping them out of, out of the dating pool. But I do think there are some challenges right now, simply because the modern world is, you know, there's a mismatch between our sort of innate desires and the way that the modern world is set up, um, such that, you know, there aren't as many men in college and women tend to prefer educated men, but, you know, men aren't going to college and, you know, people are wondering why that is. Um, there aren't as many, you know, men who are earning uh, in, in terms of the millennial generation, I believe that women are earning as much and in some cases even more than millennial men, um, at least in the UK, I read this. So you got so, better yeah. educated, richer yeah. women. Yes, so women are better educated and richer, which again is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But if they're looking for male partners, they're going to look for men who are also better educated and richer and preferably even more educated and richer than themselves. It's so this was, every uh, every you know, woman some, is is now becoming the tall friend, right? They're becoming the tall friend who can only date basketball players and you know like pro sports oh, guys because and and yeah. the 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 converse of that is really really bad for both men and women which is mm. the alternative if 
women tend to date up and across or they, their preference is to date up and across to richer and or uh, better educated men. And there are fewer of those men around. There's two choices left, which is both genders get to remain single for the rest of their life or women get into relationships with men that they're fundamentally unattracted to. Which is also not ideal, terrible, right? Terrible, I mean, well, well, there's also the other option would be uh, women can part. Women can essentially share a man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some people have speculated uh, that this is what's basically going on in these gender imbalanced um, communities, like like universities uh, and colleges, where there's a surplus of women relative to men. Men are much more likely to play the field, so to speak. You know, they're more more reluctant to settle down, more interested in casual sex, and so on. And in colleges where there are more men than women, there's actually more relationships, uh, more emotional commitment, and more of a dating culture. Um, and some people find this surprising, but it's really not because in these colleges with more men, men are basically competing to to uh, you know get a get a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And women, on average, tend to prefer you know courtship, commitment, uh, relationships, and so on. And in environments where there are more women than men, uh, women basically have to compete for the small pool of men. And what do men like? Well, men on average tend to like, um, you know, more casual situations, you know, more short term relationships, one night stands, um, you know, things that are more casual. And so women are more likely to do those things to try to get men to, to, to like them. They've so got to, They've got to play each other's game, right? When right, men exactly. are the surplus rather than the scarcity they have to play women's game and when women are the surplus rather than the scarcity they have to play men's game right yeah and we're seeing we're seeing a kind of inversion i mean i think in the past when men had more education than women um maybe it was maybe maybe monogamy was easier uh in some ways simply because you know if, if men or if yeah if women prefer dating men who are educated and have high earnings and so on relative to themselves then yeah i think maybe was easier back then uh in some ways and today when things are sort of flipped and they're they're reversed now where women have more education and so on than men uh it becomes harder and so some people have suggested that polygamy or some variation of that will arise um there's a lot to overcome a lot to overcome there and i think the the whole we haven't really delved into it too much. That is a whole nother two hour episode. I think if we try and really get into how does monogamy, uh, help with resource distribution, but from men to women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but mm. yeah, I wonder, I wonder what an increase in, um, sexual liberation for women in, uh, education for women in, you know, we're, we're talking now, we're using terms, uh, speaking about the fact that women are potentially too educated to date men, or at least to dead me- date men that they are attracted to, that they're potentially mm. um, almost shooting themselves in the foot by their earnings and by their level of education, um, because they're reducing their own dating pool down. And I wonder, as we go through potentially more uh, gender pay uh, changing, and uh, I, I don't know what the immediate future has in store. I mean, the immediate future has absolutely fuck all in store because everyone's locked in the house. But the <laughs> after that, once we once the world rebegins, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in in the shorter term, I'm more pessimistic. Um, I think like 
basically no one has the answer right now and we're going to sort of fumble and muddle our way through trying to figure out you know what to do you know in some ways and you know i've written about this you know a lot of men are, are simply just dropping out like you know you, you mentioned the the mig toe guys mig guys you know a lot of guys now more and more it seems are just not interested in relationships at all and they're sort of retreating into, you know, video games or porn or these other, you know, sort of distractions. And I wonder if as technology improves, you know, once like, you know, there's virtual reality where a man can put on a set of goggles or something and lose himself in some, you know, uh, fictional porn world, um, whether you know, some small percentage of guys will just be okay with that. Some increasingly bigger percentage of guys, potentially. Yeah. And and in that case, um, yeah, in the real world, uh, basically, there will be even fewer uh, men for women, you know, as, as men continue yeah. to drop out. And then, you know, there could be some, some sort of uh, equilibrium reached where, yeah, maybe poly- some mix of polygamy and, and reprodu- uh, uh, technology and so on will you know we'll we'll have a new norm arise i was through talking, all of this i was talking to douglas murray guy that wrote madness of crowds i had him on the podcast yeah, and um, he's he, unbelievable guy i don't know whether you've seen either but he's got jacked he's yeah, got proper jacked out of yeah. nowhere you know, i just saw him a couple of weeks ago and he he had you know his blazer on and his shirt and everything i had no idea that was underneath all Dude, of it you know, uh, anyone anyone that's listening that remembers my episode with douglas i mean he'd, he'd had a couple of wines so he's fairly lucid anyway but he uh he just looked like normal dude normal yeah, guy yeah. but he has been pounding the gym go on his go on his twitter search douglas murray go on his twitter have a look the guy's jacked out of his mind um but anyway so I was talking to him and uh, he, he, in his book, Manus of Crowds, he's got this chapter about women and he talks about, he's um, significantly less diplomatic than me and you have been this evening. Um, but he's he's talking to one of his friends and his friend uh, said, he was saying, how's your young son who's 17 or 18 or something like that? Um, is, he, is he dating anyone? And um, his friend replied and said, oh, no, he's not interested in girls. And obviously Douglas is a gay man. Immediately, yeah. went, oh, my God, he's not fucking gay, is he? <laughs> like, just having seen, like, the yeah. potential future that this this uh, fella had ahead for him. Oh, right. And, yeah, and he yeah. said, uh, oh, no, 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 he's, he's, he's not gay. He's just kind of thinks that women are a little bit difficult to get his head around. So he's kind of just exited that situation. I can't remember what he said he was doing, like, um, working a lot on his career and maybe pl- maybe doing music or playing video games or something. But you can imagine that, you know, if you are the bottom 80% of men who are disenfranchised from the dating market, who essentially can only get yourself into a relationship where your partner low-key is unattracted to you, even if they don't know it, um, and you feel like you're the worst of a bad bunch. I mean, sorry for red-pilling you this evening about it, but... Um, I'm single as fuck, so I can say what I want. Uh, but, you know, if that's what happens, like, there's the potential for a, a whole fucking disenfranchised male militia of single guys walking around. And I think that, you know, as much as they're very, very well spoken and have some incredibly uh, sophisticated arguments, there is a significant portion of the MGTOW, Red Pill, Incel, Reddit movement for whom this is probably the easiest explanation. Hmm. Mm, yeah. 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 I think, I think so. And 
there are there are more and more guys I've noticed who either yeah I mean to me that mindset of this the 17 year old kid is unimaginable you know when I was 17 when my friends were 17 like you know girls were all we could like that's all we could think about and talk (laughs) about right it was like sports and girls and that's about it and yeah I'm seeing more young guys just sort of like either either say they're not worth it or say that they can't figure it out or they don't really know and just general confusion and you know one of the things I think is important you know having conversations like this uh, because when guys go online, um, you know, there are some very toxic parts of the internet, right. Where guys go like, you know, you were talking about caricatures earlier. They, you know, sort of take, you know, principles in evolutionary psychology or in research, and then they exaggerate them or they, you know, uh, sort of turn them into the worst possible version of what the finding was in order to, you know, assuage their own feeling about why they can't get a girlfriend or something like that. And yeah, I mean, I have some sympathy for these guys too, but I mean, I think that there's a a lot of this sort of red pill MGTO stuff is, is really just sort of, you know, they want girlfriends, right? And, and this is what's, what, what it turned into. They have a lot less time. Like your, your missus would not let you spend five hours a day on Reddit. (laughs) <laughs> so the presumption is that if you're on Reddit five hours a day, you haven't got a bird. Um, yeah. So, but the, the the alternative is, unless girls are going gay, and mm-hmm. I, I haven't got, I don't know the stats about that, but unless girls are going gay, they're not dating either. You know, if men aren't dating women, women aren't dating men. That's not necessarily true. So women can date a man who is dating multiple women, right? So, okay. you know, I think this is probably what this uh, YouTube commenter guy you mentioned earlier was, t- you know, when he uh, said you're, you're, yes, you're hogging up these women. So you as a 32-year-old, you know, good-looking guy, you probably have, you know, six or seven girls on the side. No, no. Okay, that's not, sorry, eight. Just, no, right, stop. Oh. <laughs> right yeah, yeah. And and so and so, I think this is this this could be going on here. Um you know, I have I have friends who've, who've speculated this. I don't actually know of any research, but I have friends who speculate. You know, a lot of guys they know have you know four, five, six girls through Tinder that they're sort of shuffling through. Um, there was that big piece in Vanity Fair a couple of years ago where they interviewed all these guys, and they're like, you know, I you know whatever, I, I racked up forty girls this year or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, and so yeah, I think a lot of women are you know sort of dating or hooking up with uh, guys who are seeing multiple women on the side, and then there's a lot of men out there who really aren't seeing anyone. And that gets us yeah. through the casual stage of relationships, but it doesn't mm-hmm. get us to long-term partners. I see. Oh, I see what you're. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think is happening there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure what's what's going to happen there. Um, currently, I mean, it looks like. I mean, relationships are still forming, but at a lower rate, right? Marriage rates are declining. Um, divorce rates are increasing. Divorce, well, my understanding is divorce rates have mostly stabilized, but but uh, marriage rates have declined. And, and people are getting married at older and older ages, too. Um, There's still with, hope yet, Mum. Yeah, yeah, for both of us. So, yeah, long-term relationships, um, you know, they'll, they'll probably survive. I mean, we've we've gone, I mean, as humans, right. Um, we're very, very adaptable, flexible. So yeah, that's that's one of the, um, one of the most interesting things from reading evolutionary psychology, that just how adaptable humans are, just how Mm -hmm. they're able to take, you know, we, the fact that we're able to step into our conscious processes, you know, even the fact like this whole conversation here, 
why do we think this? Why do we have this preference? Why do women like this? Well, men like that. Why is there this disparity between this and the other? The fact that we're consciously able to step in and look at our own programming means that we're able to transcend it. The problem is that you can't get rid of the preferences. Mm. Like evolution Mm. is a slow process. Mm. And especially when you have a, um, an environment like the modern world, which is changing so fast, evolution is pointless at the moment anyway. What are you evolving to adapt to? Like Mm. by the time that you have your kids, the situation that they've got the genes to be adapted to has gone. Yeah. It's pointless being, being unbelievable at writing on a typewriter because now there's a laptop. It's pointless at Mm. being able to be fantastic at, um, flying a, a, plane because now there's surface to air missiles and it's the engineers that are taking out you know what i mean yeah 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 and and yeah one of the things that's sort of tragic and and perhaps one reason i think why you know people are so afraid of getting old there was this piece in the wall street journal recently um how uh old people now don't want to be called senior citizens you know sort of baby boomers they'd rather be called you know something else they're trying to find a different label for themselves because they're terrified of being associated with that label senior citizen because they Um, knew what a senior citizen was when they were not a senior citizen exactly and people are, are terrified of aging and the thing is like in in more traditional societies forging societies uh, a lot of status was conferred on on old people right well one reason was because if you could make it to that age um you know you're you're robust you know in that environment if you can live to 60 or 70 and then another reason is because you've accumulated all of this knowledge that that will help the tribe survive Whereas today it's the exact opposite. It's the 20 year olds who know sort of the most about, you know, societal trends and, you know, sort of what what people are thinking and feeling and where where the direction of things are going. And older people are sort of out of the loop. And I think there's there's something sad about that, you know, that things have flipped this much where we've created a society somehow where young people have more status than old people um, in in some ways. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more, especially when one of the things that you are able to accrue as you get older is wisdom. And now with the advent of free information, free global information at the touch of a button, there are no longer gatekeepers to that wisdom. There is more information on the internet than your granddad will ever know. And with that in mind, it becomes a lot less about life experience and much more about kind of very um brute force learning and skill acquisition abilities you know if you can learn something fast if you're uh, able to do rote recall like very effectively or whatever you pick pick your skill about learning right if you're able mm. to do that you're so much quicker ahead if you can learn yeah. in two in two years what takes someone else 20 it doesn't matter how old they are mm. like, it literally doesn't matter how old they are um yeah. so yeah it's um Man, it's it's fascinating times at the moment. I I feel like we've only just scratched the surface as well, Rob. I would uh, yeah. love to get you back on if you'd be so kind. I mean, we've got you know. I know I know that you've got fuck all else to do at the moment because you've been <laughs> <laughs> quarantined, man. Please, the for the love of God, just podcast me again. <laughs> I need um, that human connection. Yeah, I know. Um, look, there will be so many questions and comments and feedback. If you've got anything that you've been interested in throughout this conversation, where should they go on Twitter to hassle you? Yeah, you can just follow me at Rob K. Henderson. So R-O-B-K Henderson. Sweet. Um, Yeah, I'd love to hear 
everybody's feedback about this. I want to know if you're a girl who's the a protagonist in dating or if you've got a sister that does it or if you're a guy who's finding it easy on Tinder or hard on Tinder or whatever, you know, this is an, very much an emerging field. And if you can help to shine a light for me and Rob, then that'll make us better educated as well. Um, I also have to give a massive shout out, Rob, to your mailing list. I think it's fantastic. I'm subscribed to, I think it's like five mailing lists total and yours is one of them. So the link to that will be in the show notes below as well. Link to Rob's Twitter. Dudes, I uh, I hope that you enjoy. Oh, let's finish up. Sex toy sales. Oh, forgot. Well, yeah, yeah. We can get into sex toy sales. Tell me about sex uh, toy sales. Yeah. So basically, since uh, since the spread of this pandemic, uh, the coronavirus thing, uh, sex toy sales have increased. Um, yeah, uh, in multiple countries. Uh, they increased, I think, seventy one percent in Italy. Um, yeah, they increased in Canada. They increased the Italians in do not yeah. give a fuck, do they? Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, people sort of know, especially single people, they know that they're going to be locked down for a while, and you're not going to be able to jump on Tinder and, uh, and scratch that itch. So it's time to to order some, you know, 71% increase. Yeah. So so they're probably Yeah, besides like zoom, you know, I think sex toy companies are also making a lot of money right now. You know, that's the mark. No one's yeah. talking about that. No one's <laughs> Everyone's talking about the stock market crashing, but no one's talking about the price of silicon, are they, Rob? The price of silicon's going through the roof. Latex cat suits, uh, (laughs) you know, whatever. (laughs) There's a little of everything. Yeah. Look, Rob, I'm going to hassle you. I'm going to bring you back on, man. This was absolutely amazing. Um, Links to everything we've spoken about, mailing list, Rob's Twitter, all the rest of it. You know what to do. Like, share, and subscribe. If you're new here, hit the subscribe button. You get an episode every Monday and every Thursday with the most interesting humans on the planet, like the wonderful Rob. But for now, thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. It would make me very happy indeed. Don't forget, if you've got any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to message me at Chris Willex on all social media. But for now, goodbye, friends. Yeah. 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 Y